0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts,
1: John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley.
2: Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 66 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David Brin, author of novels such as the Uplift series and Kiln People. His novel, The Postman, was loosely adapted into a feature film starring Kevin Costner, and he wrapped up Isaac Asimov's Foundation series with his novel, Foundations Triumph. His latest novel, Existence, is an epic tale of alien contact set in the year 2050.
1: Then stick around after the interview as we discuss Batman in comics, TV, and film with guest geek Rob
2: Bland. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with David Brin. Welcome to the show
0: great uh, to be back in any association with WIRED.
2: Okay, so first of all, tell us about your new novel, Existence. What's it about?
0: What Existence is about is it's about the world of roughly 2050, and terrible things have happened, but guess what? People have reacted to the terrible things by coping, as they always have, and they're, and they're dealing with it. They're dealing with living in a world of augmented reality where you would step outside and you can scroll through all the overlays of augmented reality that are laid upon, upon the surface world. And uh, Google Glass is just heading us down in that direction, but I take it 40 years into the future. The book is set against what I consider to be the fundamental quandary of our age, and that's the Fermi Paradox. The notion that The universe ought to be filled with all sorts of life forms, species that came out onto the galactic stage before us, and we see no signs of them, not even in the rocks of the Earth. The Earth was prime real estate for two billion years with an oxygen atmosphere and nothing living on land higher than slime molds. So, why didn't the Independence Day aliens show up then? instead of when we happen to be be able to defend ourselves. And this astronaut in in my novel, in the first chapter, he's out there using a space lariat, a a tethered um, device that NASA is actually developing to remove space debris so that that form of pollution doesn't destroy our access to low Earth orbit. He snags something very unusual and it appears to be a crystal, um, you know, about a meter long, and it appears to be a message in a bottle. It appears to have been sent by other civilizations. And so the question, is it a hoax? Um, could it be, uh, you know, what, what might the, the motives be of the aliens that appear to be inside?
2: Okay, so Neil Stevenson has said that some mainstream critics have accused him of being grandiose for titling his novel The System of the World. Have you heard from any of those same critics about titling your novel, Existence?
0: Not really. I mean, except in a joking way. I mean, there are people who say, well, Bryn, you better live up to this. And I'm pleased to say most of them have written back to me saying grudgingly, oh, all right, you did. There's always going to be snarkers out there. and, um, And my answer to them, you know, if they have useful criticism that I can learn from, you know, my, my response is, great, would you like to join my collection of pre-readers who catch mistakes next time you might be able to catch it in manuscript?
1: Uh, so this book predicts that uh, bags of urine might be worth something in the future. Uh, you know, given the current economic situation we're in right now, I mean, would you advise that we all dump our stocks and, and, and uh, invest in urine instead?
0: The great phosphorus mines of Florida are being tapped out. And soon it'll be just Morocco and a couple other places uh, that have large phosphate beds left. And so uh, in my novel, it's posited that in 40 years or so, uh, men are expected to either pee outside or into phos urinals that collect the phosphorus.
1: Okay, so in, in existence, an uh, autism plague features uh, quite prominently. Uh, is uh, why, does, uh, why does autism uh, interest you, and what approach should we be taking to dealing with it?
0: The rate of discovery of autistic syndrome or autistic spectrum syndrome in our children is rapidly rising. Some of it may be due to better diagnosis, and some may be due to environmental factors. I posit in the book that some of it may be simply due to the fact that they're not dying anymore, but instead starting to flourish in a world of where the online opportunities to express themselves are computer-mediated and possibly enable them to lead productive lives, in which case the question is, are they sick at all? Well, I think that parts of the spectrum are obviously crippled and unhappy, but how many parts of that spectrum? Well, that's an interesting question. Ask some of the Internet billionaires who are clearly from planet Asperger. Uh,
1: So the book also explores the idea that uh, self-righteous indignation might be a form of addiction. Uh, Could you talk a bit about that?
0: I actually gave a talk at the National Institute for Drug and Addiction um, on this very topic. Uh, Believe it or not, I I still do science. I was trained as an astrophysicist, but I do guerrilla raids into you know little areas of science that are outside my expertise. And I'm pleased to be a member of a civilization that puts up with that. The boundaries that were so rigidly defended, guild boundaries of scientific specialty are no longer as fiercely defended as they were. And one piece of evidence of that is that we just won the right to establish the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UCSD. It's going to be very exciting, and all the deans from all the divisions and departments at UCSD signed on to participate in this uh, bold new endeavor that will study Imagination and how it works in human beings, from neuroscience to the arts to education, especially education, and how to um, engender and encourage it. So keep your eyes and ears open for more information about the Arthur Clarke Center. But the notion of self righteous indignation being a drug high seems to develop naturally out of recent scientific results that show that addiction is actually the most natural of human processes. You've heard the phrase addicted to love. Well, you can deliberately enter less salubrious mental states. You can deliberately go to Las Vegas and and the slot machines are now tuned to track the pattern of your behavior at the slot machine and uh, change their rewards pattern So you start getting more rewards when it calculates that you're about to stand up and give up and leave. Gambling, thrill addiction. Well, it turns out there's substantial evidence that self-righteous indignation is one of these drug highs. And any honest person, it knows this. We've all been in indignant snits, self-righteous furies. You go into the Bathroom during one of these snits, and you look in the mirror, and you have to admit, this feels great. I am so much smarter and better than those my, my enemies, and and they are so wrong, and I am so right. And if we were to recognize that self-righteous indignation is a bona fide drug high, and that, yes. Just like alcohol, some of us can engage in it on occasion. Matter of fact, when I engage in it, I get into a real bender. But then say, enough. If we were to acknowledge this as a drug addiction, then it might weaken all the horrible addicts out there who have taken over politics in America and allow, especially conservatism, to return to the genteel and calm, and intellectual ways of Barry Goldwater and William F. Buckley.
2: So I've heard that you have a list of over 100 possible solutions to the Fermi paradox. Could you talk about that?
0: I have the honor to really have done the only review article on the whole question of SETI. And the reason is... That my 1983 paper in uh, the Quarterly Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society, and you can get it through my website, davidbrin.com. That article was the only attempt to summarize the vast array of explanations for the Great Silence. Since then, it's appeared to be a human flaw or a human tendency. All the smart guys I know who have weighed in on this issue, from Paul Davies and Michio Kaku to Stephen Hawking, they all tend to pick one explanation and say, this obviously is it. I don't see the purpose served by that. I mean, this is the only scientific topic without any subject matter. It's far, far better and more useful to to catalog these things. And so in my 1983 paper, I cataloged about 70 explanations. There have been but 30 or 40 since then. And they all suffer from varied flaws. My favorite, which goes into category A, meaning that it's conceivable that it might actually reduce the numbers a whole lot, and yet is not horribly pessimistic, is the water world's hypothesis. It turns out that our Earth skates the very inner edge of our sun's continuously habitable or Goldilocks zone, and the Earth may be anomalous. It may be that because we are so close to our sun, we have an anomalously oxygen-rich atmosphere, and we have anomalously little ocean for a water world. In other words, 32% continental mass may be high among water worlds. In which case, the evolution of creatures like us with hands and fire and all that sort of thing may be rare in the galaxy. In which case, when we do build starships and head out there, perhaps we'll find lots and lots of life worlds, but they're all like Polynesia. You know, we find lots and lots of intelligent life forms out there, but they're all dolphins, whales, squid who could never build their own starships. What a perfect universe for us to be in, because nobody would be able to boss us around, and we'd get to be the Voyagers, the Star Trek people, the starship builders, the policemen, and so on.
2: What do you think about the current approach to SETI, and is there anything you'd do differently?
0: I've sort of offended some of my friends in the SETI community by pointing out that recent papers have shown that their design for a search strategy for looking for extraterrestrial intelligent life with radio, uh, the Paul Allen telescope that they built, is brilliant, it's clever, and it's designed entirely wrong. Uh, it could not possibly be designed worse for finding the kinds of messages that were likely being sent if aliens are sending us messages because they're likely to send, uh, to not waste the time making gigantic beacons, but likely they will know the thousand or 10,000 or 50,000 life worlds around them that have oxygen atmospheres. And likely, all they'll do is send a ping to each of them once every hundred years or maybe once a year saying, is there anybody there yet? Because that's cheap to do. Another cheap thing to do is what I talk about in existence, and that is sending probes. Now, any one space probe is going to be vastly more expensive than sending a ping by radio waves. You know, you have to make the thing and you have to accelerate it to 10% of the speed of light with a solar laser. and, And, you know, that's expensive. But once it arrives in the destination system, it can then wait there for millions of years until life shows up. Whereas if you're sending signal, radio signals, which are each one is cheap to make, you have to send them over and over across those millions of years.
2: So you wrote an article called World Cyber War and the Inevitability of Radical Transparency, which is a follow-up to your 1998 book, The Transparent Society. What motivated you to write that article?
0: Well, what's happened is a ferocious attempt to return to the old gut pattern of human governance. 99% of human... Civilizations that had agriculture were pyramidal in shape, that were ruled by an obligate oligarchy, a ruling caste, that made sure that its powers were inherited, because that's Darwinism at work, and that kept opportunities of those below them crushed, so that the child of a peasant would likely remain a peasant and not rise up to compete against the children of the oligarchs. And the lords and the aristocrats. The fact of the matter is that unless we have radical transparency in human civilization, this attempted putsch by a new aristocracy is going to succeed. More and more of our wealth is being hidden. The latest estimate is 20 trillion dollars has been squirreled away and nobody knows where it is. Half of the wealth of third world or developing nations has been l- robbed of them by their own kleptocracies. Can you imagine how rapidly those countries could develop if that money was simply returned to them, maybe left in sw- the Swiss bank accounts, but the Swiss instead reassigned those bank accounts from the kleptocrats to the people of those countries, so the interest could make development. Now, do I sound like a socialist? That's not socialist at all. It's just saying. That everything should be above board and capitalism should work with transparency. One of the gods of the right, Friedrich Hayek, head of uh, the founder of the Austrian School of Economics, who the conservatives claim to consider to be the greatest economist of all times, said that the absolute necessity of capitalism is for all the players to know all of what's going on all the time so they can make good capitalist decisions, even a laborer in a factory, even a peasant. If that peasant knows everything that's going on, then that peasant can make the best deal for the fish he just caught or the yam he just grew. The greatest hypocrisy on the planet right now is for those who defend capitalism to not be in favor of radical transparency for all of us to know who owns everything. And that is my militant, radical, moderate, pro-capitalist, pro-enlightenment, ferocious uh, stand.
2: So, your uplift series explores the possibility of boosting the intelligence of animals such as dolphins and chimps. How close are we to achieving that?
0: The concept of uplift is one of the most popular that I've put in my novels. And people love to read where I portray the end game, and that is dolphins and chimps are almost ready. They can talk to us, they can add their wisdom to our culture. These novels set 200 years in the future are about this endgame, about where the dolphins and the chimps are proving themselves, and it's a wonderful, glorious thing that we've expanded the range of what it means to be human. We've expanded the range of wisdom that can participate in and compete and and partake in this wonderful enlightenment of ours. And in existence, I talk about how. We're going to add artificial intelligences. We're going to add autistic people who will suddenly be technologically empowered to communicate. We're going to probably resurrect Neanderthals within the lifetimes of our children. And it'll be a more diverse world. So isn't it a great thing to uplift dolphins and chimpanzees and other animals that could be uplifted to be our companions? And people write to me about that. And then I respond and I say, yes. But are you prepared to get this started, knowing that to get the outcome at the other end, 200 years in the future, that I describe in my uplift novels, these creatures are going to experience a lot of pain. There's going to be 200 years of pain. Now, I'm not the first to describe uplifting animals. Cordwainer Smith did it in his wonderful novels. Pierre Boulet did it in Planet of the Apes. H.G. Wells did it in The Island of Dr. Moreau, and in every case, they took the simplistic morality tale, the Michael Crichton version of this tale, and that is some isolated scientist does this as a mad experiment, and it winds up being horrible, and he gets his, in the end, like Victor Frankenstein, and every thing gets put back. And these were inspirations for Michael Crichton, because that was the pattern for all of his novels. I don't look at things that way. I say, let's do a thought experiment. What if we do it wisely? What if we do it as us? What if we do it in the open, abandoning secrecy and, and with all the criticism and with the best of intent, and not trying to make them slaves, as Boulet and Smith and Wells portrayed, but trying to you know, get additional voices for our culture? What if we did all the things right there would still be more than a 100 years of pain. And if anybody tried to get started an Uplift Project, immediately most of the people who said, ooh, this is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful in 200 years, they would say, no, let's not do this because of that pain. And that's a quandary that I explore in existence, which turns out to be a prequel to my Uplift Universe. Because it shows how the uplift project might get started,
1: uh, so you mentioned uh, Planet of the Apes, and you know the idea of boosting primate intelligence was recently uh, dealt with in the you know in the prequel movie the uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, did you see that, and what did you think of the movie and how they handled the boosting of primate intelligence?
0: Well, I actually started out somewhat hostile to that movie i I, I wasn't very happy at first with what i'd heard, but I was won over. They went away from the standard Frankenstein, we're going to treat them like garbage notion. Instead, garbage happens to this ape, but it happens in the course of individual human beings making mistakes and uh, some individual human beings being shitty. But civilization itself is not automatically repulsive and evil in that movie. Of course, the fact of the matter is that science creates something beautiful, makes a bunch of mistakes, and then it's science, not our oppression of our eight slaves, but a scientific error that winds up killing us.
1: Uh, So in speaking of movies, uh, you've been highly critical of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. Uh, What sort of reactions do you get when you criticize such popular stories?
0: I'll tell you, I didn't get anywhere near as much hate mail from my dissing of Star Wars and Yoda, as I got for pointing out that our personal computers don't have BASIC on them anymore. The geeks came out in droves to attack me for that. Uh, but people can look it up. It's called Why Johnny Can't Code, and it points out that the computers and tablets and all that that kids have these days don't have an entry-level good way for a kid to learn programming. But the Lord of the Rings, well, I respect Tolkien. People should look up my essay. I really respect and admire Tolkien. I think he was the most honest of the romantics. It happens, I think, that romanticism is an enemy meme. I think it is deeply, deeply contrary to the Enlightenment and deeply harmful. But Tolkien himself was the most incredibly honest romantic. He himself pointed out the flaws of the elves and the drawbacks of Romanticism. I respect Tolkien. If I had gone to World War I like he did and watched the flower of my generation mowed down by machine guns, I might have turned against modernity, too. I make a very big distinction between him and George Lucas, who has been given everything by modernity who has been treated fantastically by modernity and who has spent the last 20 years relentlessly pissing in modernity's face, preaching romantic claptrap about how demigods and mystic warriors are better than democracy. He never once shows the republic ever functioning at all, at any level, in any way. And those who think this wasn't deliberate, he told the New York Times in an interview that he despised democracy and that he considered the best form of government to be a benign dictatorship, and strongly hinted that someone like him would probably make make the cut. I consider Yoda to be just about the most evil character I've ever seen in the history of of, of literature. I have gotten people into tongue-tied Smiths, unable to name for me one scene in which Yoda is ever helpful to anybody or says anything that's genuinely wise. Do or do not, there is no try. Up yours <laughs> you, 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 you horrible little oven myth, try is how human beings get better. That's how people learn. They try part of their, their muscles or their force mechanism get heads in the right direction. That part gets reinforced and rewarded with positive feedback, which you never give. And parts of it gets get repressed by saying, no, that you will not do it. It's, it's abhorrent junior high school zen. It's cartoon crap. Saying that got me a book, because I was invited to do Star Wars on Trial, in which I was the prosecuting attorney, and uh, Matthew Woodring Stover, who was one of Lucas's novelizers, got to be the defense attorney, and it was such huge fun. A lot of snapping of suspenders, and, and calling each other out, and, and calling witnesses. We would call witnesses on uh, back and forth on a dozen different themes.
2: And finally, just are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention?
0: Well, people ask why, you know, it's been nine or ten years between major Brin novels, and one of them was that existence was so complicated. But I've also been doing other projects along the way, and one is my first science fiction comedy, and I think uh, folks will get a lot of groans out of it. Either they'll get a lot of yucks, or they'll say yuck. uh, Comedy is very hard. Uh, I don't know. The other thing um, I've been working on is a YA series in which aliens kidnap a California high school and eventually regret it.
2: All right, great. So, David Brin, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: All right. Bye, Dave. Bye, John.
2: And that was our interview. So thanks so much to David Brin for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing Batman in comics, TV, and film. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Rob Bland, who is an author and film producer. He's a two-time Cine Eagle Award winner for the independent short films On Time and Writer's Block, and is currently executive producing a feature-length independent film, 79 Parts, directed by Ari Taub. Rob is also an alum of Gene Cavellos' Odyssey Workshop, and he is currently pecking away at an urban fantasy novel, Divinity Bind. He also has the largest collection of Batman comics, of anyone I know. So, Rob, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, guys. Great to be here.
2: Okay, and so I think we're just going to start out and talk about some comics. And since, as I mentioned, Rob has a big Batman comic collection, uh, why don't you start out, Rob, and just tell us how would you get into Batman, and uh, what do you think of the comics in general?
3: I myself tend to concentrate on the Batman comics that have him going solo because I'm frankly I'm not a big I'm not a big Robin fan. What got me into Batman just you know as a kid was the TV show you know the uh, Adam West TV show and then what sort of reignited my interest with the Batman Canon, was uh, Frank Miller's uh, Dark Knight Returns. I mean, that really lit a fire under me.
2: I mean, I've mentioned I've never been a huge comic book fan, but if people recommend something, and if someone hands me a comic book or a a graphic novel and says, this is amazing, you have to read it, I'm happy to read it. And so actually Rob handed me Dark Knight Returns years ago and said, this is amazing, you have to read it. I think that might actually have been the first Batman comic slash graphic novel that I read, and I, I did love it. And since then, I've read a a couple more. I actually really like reading graphic novels on airplanes. I find that's a really good way to pass the time. So if I'm in an airport bookstore and I see a Batman comic, often I'll get it. And so ones I've read like that are uh, one called Hush and The Killing Joke by Alan Moore, which is sort of a classic Joker origin story. And Batman Year One I read uh, at my cousin Ross's house at Christmas or something, because he had gotten it for Christmas. How about you, John? How many Batman comics have you actually read?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm by far the least read Batman uh, person on our panel here. Um, I uh, I literally I think I've only read The Dark Knight Returns, and it was only recently that I read it after uh, Rob uh, sort of was on my case about it for for years or so, or something like that. And he eventually bought a copy of it and just handed it to me. He's like, "Read this already," <laughs> um, and so I finally I finally just read it. But I uh, you know I got into Batman through uh the movies uh really uh you know the first the first uh batman thing i'd ever seen probably was the tim burton batman movie and you know i, I mean we talked about it on the show before how i used to you know i read comics pretty heavily for a couple years but uh you know how the kids these days they they tend to uh pick a team when they re- when they're reading their their favorite uh, uh ya series or whatever like you know i i was team marvel you know versus <laughs> team dc back in the day there. uh and once you start reading a, a series in any in, in one of the universes, whether it's Marvel or DC, it's like, you, you know, they get through the hooks into you and, you and they do these crossovers and you have to read all the different books. Right. And as much as I would have liked to read Batman, it's like I, I just I can't go down the DC path. I'm already I'm already uh, I'm already into Marvel, you know, and it's like if I had started reading Batman, I would have had to read Superman and I would have had to read, you know, Green Lantern or I don't know. I would have gotten to fell down that rabbit hole and then I wouldn't have any money at all.
2: Well, I guess we've all read Dark Knight Returns, though, right? I mean, Rob, do you want to talk about, just sort of for people who haven't read it, what it's about and why it made such a big impact on you?
3: I believe uh, The Dark Knight Returns came out in uh, 1984. And it really captures the times. It spoke to me on a political level. It spoke to me on a dramatic level of, of a man who has seen Gotham just crumble and, and he can't and he's in his 50s he's got gotta at least be in his 50s when he decided to come back as batman uh, the joker was just vicious in the dark knight returns as well so is i don't know it, it just seemed like when i read it i was like this is batman this is the way batman should always be
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it made a big impression on me because I had never, I maybe not having read so many Batman comics, it just had all this stuff that I never really imagined might be part of a Batman comic. You know, this idea that Batman would be at odds with Superman and Superman is sort of a tool of the government and he gets blown up by an intercontinental ballistic missile. And I I remember when you you, you were telling me about how Batman has this big robot suit and he plugs it into the Con Ed.
3: Oh, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I really loved that because, you know, he knew... Obviously, Batman knew what he was up against in terms of Superman, and and basically hooking himself up to Con Ed in this in this suit to battle him was just it was utilizing the city, the the power of Gotham to fight Superman. It was very symbolic to me.
2: See, and John, you just read this fairly recently, yeah. right? What I mean, what yeah. were your impressions of it?
1: you know i enjoyed it i i thought i thought it was i thought it was really interesting um i i i can see it as something that is a bit of a product of its time i've already seen dark batman i i mean i've seen the two the two previous christopher nolan movies you know the first two christopher nolan movies and i mean admittedly this has something else going for it and it has the whole like you know batman's retired he's coming back out of retirement that whole thing was cool but i think a lot of what made this like such an important book was that it was it like pushed all these boundaries at the time that it came out and actually it it came out in 1986 so just to correct the record there it came out in 86 but um i mean as, as just as a reader there's a lot of things about it that like bugged me like i found it's like really super dense it's like it's really like not a fast read at all uh it tells a lot of the story through like these uh talking heads uh on tv And I mean, that's like, well, that's a cool idea. Like, I just got so sick of it. Like, I I just I couldn't I I mean, I I skimmed over a lot of that stuff and and maybe I missed something. But on the upside, I mean, I thought like like Rob, I I mean, I'm not a huge fan of of Robin, but I mean, I thought this was a really cool take on Robin where you have where there has been no Robin and and Batman just, uh, you know, on his own in retirement. And then, you know, this this young girl uh, decides to take up the mantle to help him out when he comes back. I mean, like, I thought that was cool. Um, that was great. And,
3: uh, When I saw this little girl as Robin, I was like, of course Robin would be a little girl. That makes perfect sense for some reason.
2: The part from Dark Knight that really sticks in my mind is where Batman kind of busts through a wall behind this guy and grabs him and then mows people down with this gigantic belt fed machine gun or something,
3: <laughs> which mm-hmm. is
2: very much at odds with the idea that Batman never doesn't use a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Rob, what did you think about that? And was that a big change when it came out of Batman just
3: yeah that that was that was a a a challenge for me I was like um, this is really pushing it there were so many elements of the story that were resonating with me but yeah there were elements of the story that actually kind of scared me but I think that's I think that's what Frank Miller was was clearly gunning for. No pun intended.
2: <laughs> well, I've actually seen. Didn't Batman originally carry a gun, like in the, when he was very first introduced, and then that got changed at some point? I was wondering, is that a comics code thing or something, or how?
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. There was political pressure. I mean, people were complaining early on when Batman first came out that it was too dark and. You know, I was told that the pressure on Bob Kane was to actually lighten it up, which is why he introduced the Robin character in the first place.
1: Ah, you know, I mean, one of the things uh, I mean, as far as The Dark Knight Returns goes, um, I mean, I think probably the thing that I enjoyed most about reading it and reading it recently is like I could see these like influences to Nolan. One of the biggest ones is the is the idea of that of, of the Batmobile that Nolan uses, which is like more of a tank. Right. And right. I mean, that's and that's basically what Batman has in the Dark Knight Returns. Well,
2: let's see, Rob. I mean, you know, you got me into Dark Knight Returns. I mean, what are some of the other Batman stories that are sort of must read Batman stories?
3: Uh, The Killing Joke, Uh, Hush. I really like uh, Nightfall, which clearly influenced uh, Dark Knight Rises.
1: That was such a major event when that came out. Like, I feel like I knew so much about that story, even though I never read it. Like, I I definitely never read it, but I mean, I knew, I knew about Bane. I knew, like, I mean, like in that story, I'm, I'm not sure if that's where Bane first appears, but anyway, he has this epic fight with Batman, and like, he defeats him, and he like breaks his back or something.
3: Before he got his back broken. Bane was really having Batman and Robin chase their tails because he had broken he had broken all the criminals out of Arkham Asylum. And he was step by step wearing Batman down because he was uh, he was basically analyzing Batman because he knew at that point he couldn't beat him uh, one on one. So what he just his his strategy was to wear Batman down. So for months Batman is just overextending himself and overextending himself, you know, trying to get the Riddler, trying to get the Joker, trying to get the Scare- Scarecrow and and on and on. And so finally when uh, Bane thinks it's time to finally face a Batman, you know, he's figured out that Batman is Bruce Wayne. And so it's when it's when a uh, Bruce Wayne who's been not been able to sleep at all and has completely been overextended by having to basically recapture all these prisoners from Arkham. And he's just almost catatonic in the way he thinks and the way he moves his body. That's when Bane meets him, I think in his office in, in Wayne Manor. And so Bruce Wayne is completely, ambushed and surprised and Bane basically just smacks him around. I mean, it wasn't really you you said it was an epic battle. It really wasn't much of an epic. It was an mm. epic moment, but mm-hmm. the battle itself was not epic at all cuz Batman could barely lift his barely lift his arm to throw a punch. He's just sort of th- throws uh Batman around like a rag doll all the way down into the Batcave. And um Uh, Batman just barely gets up every single time, you know. And then finally, he's just like he picks him up and breaks his back, and then uh, goes to the streets of Gotham with the with the paralyzed uh, Batman, and throws him off the uh, edge of the roof onto the ground, and says, "Here's your here's your defeated hero. Gotham is mine." And on top of that, you know, uh, Bane had that venom drug that was feeding his system, that was sort of like this narcotic super steroid which enhanced his physical uh, strength and made him also impervious to pain i mean that shows you how insecure bane was actually when he faced batman because he did not need venom at all but before he did anything he pumped himself up with a bunch of venom so that uh he would ensure his victory
1: if you want to know, like, the different Batman villains, like, you know, what do you read? Like, so The Killing Jokes about the Joker, for instance, like, like, what's the best book to read about Two-Face?
3: Yeah, well, um, you know, Two-Face is given, uh, you know, uh, really good treatment in uh, Dark Victory and uh, Long
1: Halloween. What about, like, Raza Ghoul? because like i mean he he was somebody like i had no idea who that was when he showed up in Batman Begins and he's very important to the Nolan movies so
3: i think it's uh Daughter of the Demon and Son of the Demon i think those are the two uh uh graphic novels that really covers uh Ra's al Ghul you know in the comics he's hundreds of years old i mean he truly mm. is he truly is immortal uh not to mention Obviously, legacy, which informs *The Dark Knight Rises* as well, because that's where that's where Ra's al Ghul and Bane sort of team up to attack uh, Gotham. Mm.
1: Would you recommend *The Dark Knight Strikes Again* as well? That's the, the sort of follow-up to *The Dark Knight Returns*, well, also by Frank brought, Miller.
3: I'm glad you brought that up because I couldn't get into it, and the reason why <clears> I couldn't <throat> get into it was because of the artwork. The artwork was way too jagged and.
2: It was not inviting. All right, cool. So now why don't we talk about the Adam West TV show? I grew up with that, so I've watched a lot of that, although it's been a long time. I really liked the fact that they slid down poles to get into the Batcave. God, I loved the fact that they had the bushes that sort of dropped down so that they could drive into the Batcave. (laughs) <laughs> like, like when you're a kid you know that's like the most exciting thing you could possibly imagine it's like oh if only i had some bushes that like drop down like that and i could just drive it and they would pop up again and no one knew <laughs> what was hiding behind those bushes
1: i have i basically have no attachment to the tv series at all like i mean I, i'm sure i must have seen it as a kid it, ne- it never made much of an impression on me
2: but john it's they it. had bat shark repellent in their belt <laughs> how cool is that
1: well i guess
2: that's kind of cool but you know.
1: It was a
3: campy show that obviously knew it was campy, and they did yeah. it extremely, extremely well.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, and I, I mean, uh, obviously, and like, I mean, they do—they were doing it on purpose, and so right. like, I can't criticize them for that. It's just it wasn't for me. It's it's just not my taste.
3: Yeah, well, I, I like watching the few episodes of Batman where Bruce Lee was in it. You know, playing uh mm-hmm. Kato and the Green Hornet. You know. Mm-hmm.
2: I guess the the moments from that show that really stick in my memory is there was one time where the two of them were strapped to this giant music machine that was somehow punching notes or something into this uh, roll of paper that they were on and they had to whistle the right notes would somehow cause the machine to punch notes just so that it wouldn't kill them. (laughs) That one really stuck. You know,
3: that's funny. I don't remember that episode at all. Who was the villain in that?
2: Dude, I don't remember. This is when I was like (laughs) five years old um the other thing was i guess they had a there was a feature film right yeah where that because i really remember that where the uh the joker i think has this um dehydration gun and he shoots all the un representatives turning them all into powders of, uh piles of powder <laughs> yeah and then batman's able to rescue them but the powder all i don't know somebody sneezes or something and the powder all gets kind of mixed up and so then when they rehydrate everyone they're all speaking the wrong languages and stuff
3: yeah <laughs> yeah that was that was hilarious <laughs> Absolutely hilarious.
2: Rob, I mean, which moments from the show do you remember most vividly?
3: Catwoman. (laughs) Julie Newmar. Um, Mr. Freeze scared me to death. He was the only real villain that I thought Batman and Robin couldn't deal with.
1: All I know about Mr. Freeze, unfortunately, is is from that uh, the movie that shall not be named uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, let me ice you a question.
2: <laughs> well, how about did, you, did any of you guys ever watch the I think it's the Warner Brothers cartoon, the Batman cartoon that was on. It was on sort of when I was in high school, kind of Oh,
1: is this, was is that... this like Batman, the animated series with Mark Hamill.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was fantastic.
1: Yeah, that's oh, a, that's oh, really good. Oh, my God. You, you, Yeah. Mark Hamill did an amazing
3: job as the Joker.
1: Yeah. Um, is that where um, Harley Quinn comes from or is that a different yeah. iteration?
2: No. Yeah. She was she was introduced okay. in, in that one. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. yeah and so, I mean, that's it. That's an interesting case that, you know, so Harley Quinn was introduced in the animated series and then she later became a character in the actual comics. And I think I, I mean, that, I never really remember ever hearing of that happen. Uh, you know, like anytime Anytime they do an adaptation of a comic, and then they, you know, in some other media, they typically that the additions that they make only appear in that in that different media. They don't end up filtering back into the comic. And so I thought that was cool that they, you know, they created such a great character that people, so many people liked that they actually made her into a, you know, regular comic book character. And I mean, you know, and she's, I think she's even in a, like a comic, uh, you know, like separate from Batman now too. So.
2: The thing about the the animated series that I really liked was that that Bruce Wayne was the one probably still that I most believe could actually be Batman. I mean, mm-hmm. that guy was always jogging or practicing <laughs> judo or m- lifting weights or thing. Like any time you see him not as Batman, he's either doing something for the plot or he's like working out or something. And that's what you would have to do if you were mm-hmm. Batman. I mean, you'd have to be just training all the time. One of the episodes that really sticks in my mind from that series was called I Almost Got Him. And it it was really, it had a good structure. It was, it had this frame story where all these Batman villains were sitting around talking about how they almost, times that they almost got Batman. And then there would be sort of a flashback kind of thing where you would see the story of the, the vignette of how they almost got Batman. Mm. And just like, you don't see stuff like that on most other cartoons. It was just that level of quality writing was really stood out in that show. There was this one where there's an Olympic athlete and he's taking these steroids that turn him into a werewolf. And that was really freaking cool. <clears throat> um, There was also this two-part episode where there's this guy who's creating robots who look indistinguishable from humans. I think I made you guys... Didn't I make you guys watch that one one time? Yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, yeah. Uh, the robot creator, I think he's named Rossum too, so it's kind of a... Oh, okay,
3: mm-hmm. so it's a play on RUR?
2: Yeah, yeah. Were you the one, John, who just sent me the thing that they actually did a... Version of Dark Knight Returns.
1: Yeah, you know, you know, there's a there's a trailer that just got uh, released uh, recently. Uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're they're making a full on animated uh, film of of Dark Knight Returns, uh, and I'm not sure when that's coming out. But um, I mean, if you Google, you can find the trailer for it. it. It does look pretty good.
2: All right, shall we move on to the Tim Burton movie? Sure. the The, the thing about the Tim Burton movie that really that I really remember is that. <laughs> when when you first see the batmobile and it goes sort of sort of driving away from the camera and you can see the flaming you know rocket engine thing in the back yeah. uh, the whole audience just started cheering at that hmm. part and i think that was the first time i'd ever seen an audience just cheer wildly for something on on screen like that and hmm. it, it really that just i just remember that as just one of the most magical moments i've ever had watching movies of just sort of everyone in the audience having this joyful recognition of this this hmm. thing
1: yeah, you know, I mean, uh, like I was saying earlier, I mean, uh, I mean that movie was the first, Bat- the first Burton Batman movie was really my introduction to to Batman, and, and I mean, I liked it. I mean, I really liked it, and uh, I, I know, I know Rob isn't a fan, and and and, not, and a lot of people who are fans of the Nolan movies aren't um, fans of Burton, but but I mean, I really liked it. I, I liked the portrayal of the Joker, and, and I mean, obviously, as I was saying earlier, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Batman aficionado so I mean, I'm not comparing it to comics or anything. I'm only appreciating it for what it is on screen. But I mean, I, I always thought it was cool that they had somebody like Michael Keaton play Batman because it's like, well, he doesn't look like you know, he doesn't look like a superhero at all. And, and I mean that's the cool what's one of the cool things about Batman is that, you know, he's not. I mean he's just like, you know, he's just like a really good fighter and stuff. And it's like and they and and you know, they sort of introduced this idea that the Batman suit is is like armor, it's like body armor, and so that sort of helps explain why you can take all this punishment and stuff. There's a lot to like about it. I mean, and Jack Nicholson as the Joker, I thought was really good. Um, You know, and I mean, he's been since surpassed by Heath Ledger, I think. But, you know, I I mean, I I have really fond memories of it.
2: Yeah, Rob, do you want to talk about, as John alluded to, that you're not a big fan of it? or
1: What year did uh, Tim Burton's Batman come out? I want to say 89, uh, but let me just uh, do a quick
2: Google. Yeah, that's what I was going to say.
3: Because it it was around that time. It wasn't. It was the late '80s. I mean, it was clearly after The Dark Knight Returns, and I'm assuming, you know, you guys were considerably younger when you saw uh, Tim Burton's Batman film versus me, who is uh, I was in my early 20s. I already was a huge fan of uh, of The Dark Knight Returns, and there was this promising. You know, a uh, project, the, this new Batman project that was a movie co- that was coming out that was going to uh, be dark. You know, it was going to be influenced heavily by the Dark Knight Returns. And I'm sorry, but I, I challenge anyone to tell me that that's influenced <laughs> by the Dark Knight Returns. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> and the Joker, um, not my Joker. I mean, he might be somebody's Joker, but not, not the Joker that uh, I recognize in the comics. And uh, making uh, the Joker be the killer of Batman's parents, I, I uh, was appalled by that.
2: Rob, I mean, yeah, uh, you alluded to the fact that we're younger than you are. And, yeah, I think I was about 12 when that movie came out. So, like, for me, it was a really dark movie. I mean, just some of the stuff was really scary to me. I Probably it's silly if I were to watch it now. But Mm -hmm. the part where the Joker, you know, he falls in the acid or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then he had this this doctor with, like, crummy tools has to do surgery on him. Like, I had to close my eyes during that part. That was, like, so scary. You know, and then he, like, smashes the mirror and starts laughing when he... Starts cackling when he sees the results and stuff. Yeah. That freaked the hell out of me when I was a kid. And and also well, just like the idea that that you would like put shampoo in your hair and then like be dead and have this like freaky smile on your face and your hair would <laughs> turn green. Like, that was scary stuff when you're twelve years old.
3: Absolutely. Like I said, this is this is an age This you're you're talking to a guy who's basically three years removed from reading The Dark Knight Returns, and Hollywood has promised a movie <laughs> in that bent and it comes out they basically come out with a highly stylized cartoon it just <laughs> wasn't me my, my my friends my my geek friends at the time and we were just, you know all batman fans um especially of the the dark knight returns um mm-hmm.
2: so wait rob so after you were so disappointed with that did you watch batman returns and the other ones
1: Batman Returns isn't that with uh, uh, Val Kilmer? No, no that's the, it's the second Burton one that has the joke. Uh, it has uh, the penguin in it. Oh, Vito you know, as a penguin. Yeah, so, the, the real
3: sort of gross version, that sort of disgusting version of the penguin. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah.
2: flippers for hands.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I did see that actually.
1: I did see that. Mm-hmm. And did um, you hate it just as much, or what do <laughs> you think?
3: No, no. I mean, I already knew what what he had done already with the Batman universe in, in cinema. So, I mean, I knew it was basically going to be more of the the same.
2: And then how about, yeah, and then, th- then there was the Val Kilmer one, and then there was the George Clooney one, of which we do not speak. <laughs>
1: um, right. right. I mean, honestly, one of the worst movies ever made, I mean.
2: Yeah, oh, for sure.
1: Yeah, the Batman nipples and everything.
2: <laughs> um, but, I mean, the Val Kilmer one, I think it's, that's the one with the Riddler and Two-Face, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that struck—I mean, it's horrible—but the the thing that struck me about that is that I had already, by that point, I had seen Two Face in the animated series, and he's very cool in the animated series. In the part where you know he has this, he makes all his decisions by flipping this coin that has heads on both sides, and one side is kind of a scored, messed-up face. Right. And uh, and Batman. There's a climactic scene where Batman sort of overturns this box full of quarters, and then Two Face can't find his quarter and he doesn't he can't make a decision without it the way it's presented it's just also creepy and psychotic and weird and interesting mm-hmm. and then just to see how diminished it was in that val kilmer movie <laughs> you know it's just like jesus christ this is like a saturday morning cartoon is 10 times better than this hollywood mm-hmm. feature film what is going on here
1: right right sure in the Joel Schumacher one that followed, uh, I can't even bring myself to say the name of it, but the, <laughs> the George Clooney Batman movie, um, you know, Robin's in that one. And then there's like a scene where like they find like some, some metal metal that has holes in it. And he's like, he's like, holy metal Batman or whatever. Like he makes, you know, you know, he's like in the TV show they have, he's like, he's always like, like holy this or that Batman, you know, did, like, did they, he, really, he, did
3: they really do that? Did they? Yeah. Really do that movie? Yeah.
1: But then it's like it was just like this in joke for the audience. And I was like, screw you, Hollywood. You know, Joel Schumacher, you can go die in a fire, you know, um, <laughs> just because. Oh, And actually, you know what, what? What I found really appalling, like uh, after the fact was like, you know, like years later, like he Joel Schumacher directed a movie called "Like Eight Millimeter. It's super, super dark. So like, why the hell did he make this like fluorescent fucking Batman movie that's just like it's like it's, it's an abomination. Let me ask you, a que-
3: you two a question. You mm-hmm. two, obviously, clearly the first Tim Burton Batman film meant something to you. When did the Batman movies, based on Tim Burton's first film, when did they start losing their magic for you?
2: Oh, I mean, for me with the second one, I mean, I still liked it, but nowhere near as much as the first one. And it was just, it just, I just remember it being just sort of depressing and weird and... And then, like, when when they replaced Michael Keaton with Val Kilmer, I mean, that just sort of killed the whole series for me. Not because I loved mm-hmm. Michael Keaton, although I kind of did love him as a kid. But, right. like, Batman can't be a different guy in the same mm-hmm. series, you know? Um right. So, yeah, I mean, bas- basically, I loved that first one as a kid. And all the sequels were disappointments on an exponentially expanding scale.
3: Yet you saw every single one of those movies? I did, yeah. Wow! Can't, well, you, you did too, you didn't kill. you? I I saw the first three ones, uh, I, and the one with Clooney I didn't see.
2: Oh God! Oh,
3: good! Don't! tell Go yourself, Don't lucky. do it! What is the George Clooney Batman
2: called? Is it just called?
1: No! Batman? No! Don't say it!
2: <laughs> Rob, if you say it, then it appears.
3: <laughs> <laughs> all right! Let, all right! Let's let's move on then. <laughs>
2: Alright, yeah, so let's move on to the to the Nolan movies. So um yeah, it was interesting, Rob, because I remember you didn't even want to go see it. I was like, dude, Batman movie coming out. I was so excited and you're like, yeah, I don't even want to see it.
3: Right, <laughs> exactly, because I'd just been so traumatized by the Burton stuff, so
2: And Christopher Nolan was pretty much an unknown quantity at that time, as I remember. I mean, he had directed Memento, which I had loved, and I think that's the only thing that I'm that's the only reason I'd ever heard of him, so
3: Right. Yeah. When you told me that it was done by Christopher Nolan, I couldn't jump from Memento to Batman in my mm-hmm. mind. I was like, how does that work? You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought it was a very strange choice, but I was I was immediately uh, curious to see it because, I mean, I loved Memento. And I was like, I love the idea of this like indie filmmaker, you know, taking the reins and seeing what he does with it. You know, because yeah. it's, it's always interesting to see these guys who come up with the indie sensibility, you know, giving the reins to some big Hollywood blockbuster. Uh, and it doesn't always work. Like, for instance, uh, Alien Resurrection. But, um, you know, uh, like, no, I mean, I, I, I was re- I was very impressed, um, although I, I will say that I, I actually I was not a I was not immediately uh, in love with Batman Begins like you two guys were. And like, I only I, I came to appreciate it more after seeing the Dark Knight, because like, for instance, when the Dark Knight was coming out, like I wasn't even like super enthused about it because like, I mean, because like I like Batman Begins, but I didn't love it. Um, right. And it was only after I saw the Dark Knight uh, and I and I love that that I I went back and I grew to appreciate Batman Begins more.
2: I mean, what I really liked about Batman Begins is the same thing I kind of liked about the animated series is that you could believe it to such a degree, you know, you're like, Oh, Bruce Wayne gets all this prototype military gear. Okay. That makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like just like he and Alfred made the Batmobile (laughs) in their garage. Like, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, And I've always, I've always really liked uh, Christian Bale ever since I saw him in American Psycho. Right, right, <laughs> um,
3: absolutely, absolutely.
2: Always, with a lot of the superhero movies, just the end is sort of, always feels kind of obligatory. Right. And I kind of felt like that way in Batman Begins, but particularly the like the first two acts uh, of that movie, I just loved. I loved how scary the Scarecrow was. Oh, man, mm-hmm. when he uh, that on that was... bag on his head. and
3: Yeah. But what I also loved about Batman Begins was how he also concentrated on Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne as a character, and Bruce Wayne's demons, and Bruce Wayne's issues, and how those character traits and those demons that Bruce Wayne struggled with fed directly into the Batman persona. And then the other element that I really liked about uh, Batman Begins was how it treated the source material. I mean, when he had Batman stuck in Arkham Asylum and Batman hits that little button on the bottom of his heel, you know, and the bats come just sort of envelop the entire area. I mean, that is straight out of Frank Miller's Batman Year One.
2: All right. So then Dark Knight. I, I think we all we all agree, right? This is the best. Uh, yeah. Of the trilogy.
3: I don't know. I Believe it or not, I'm still thinking about that. I really liked The Dark Knight a lot. I don't know if I liked it more than you guys. I think you guys liked it more than me.
2: Again, I, the, the last third or so, I had really mixed feelings about, honestly, mm-hmm. the, the Dark Knight. I mean, I loved Heath Ledger's performance. I loved how it was sort of like a crime movie yeah. uh, more than a superhero movie. Right. Um, just a lot of the stuff at the end just doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to me with the, the super spy computer and the Batman taking the fall for mm-hmm. uh, Two-Face. It, it, when I, I really I, I only saw it once, but I really felt when I watched it that it almost felt like it should have been two movies or something, mm-hmm. that the, 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 the first two thirds were kind of this great setup, and then the final third kind of wrapped everything up really, really fast.
1: There's this video been going around uh, online lately, there's all there's this old interview with uh, Tom Waits, uh, the singer, and in this interview, it's just like it's obviously like Heath Ledger must have seen this and 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 partially based his uh, his performance of the Joker on this because it's like oh my god he he looks exactly it's like that's exactly like uh, the Joker sounds.
2: The the thing in Dark Knight that really the moment that really sticks in my mind is funny. It's actually the part where the the guy who was the president in the Fifth Element takes that de- he's like. Give me that detonator. And the guy says, what are you going to do with it? And he says, I'm going to do what you should have done from the start Mm -hmm. or something. Right. That moment, man, like for all the stuff in that movie, the Joker and Batman, all the crazy shit and special effects trucks flipping over. It's like that moment with this minor character had the most emotional impact on me, I think, of anything Mm -hmm. in that movie.
3: Early on in the movie, when Harvey Dent is still Harvey Dent. And, um, he's very much in love with, uh, Oh God, what's her name? Rachel,
1: Rachel. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, uh, and they're having dinner with Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne's meeting him for the first time. And they're having that philosophical discussion about heroes and villains and how, you know, eventually if the hero lives long enough that he'll eventually become the villain. And clearly that's what, you know, happens at the end where Batman is considered the villain. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that so, was a great line actually yeah and followed through nolan followed through on that so actually uh so uh, one one interesting thing i recently discovered about the movie um do you guys remember the scene where uh the joker is leaving the hospital and 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 he's like he has this remote detonator and he's pushing the buttons and, and the building's blowing up behind him and then at some right. point like he pushes the button and like nothing happens and he's like right. he, he like takes the remote and he like sort of bangs it you know so I, I was watching this video online and it was like the top 10 uh, improvised moments in movie history or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. like apparently that w- that was a mistake. I mean that right. like it was supposed to actually blow up when he pressed the button, but then it didn't. And so he just so he just improvised that and then and like, like they liked it. So they left it in. So yeah. I, thought, I thought that was awesome.
2: All right, cool. So let's talk about Dark Knight Rises. I haven't actually we haven't talked about this at all. So I'm actually curious to hear what you guys think. I guess why don't we just quickly declare that this it might involve some spoilers uh, in case anyone's uh, not clear on that. I know, Rob, you said you, you almost, you're not even sure if you like this as much as Dark Knight or it's, it's close for you.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 all these films are so different. I mean, he's, Nolan really is, even though, you know, obviously he has one big story arc to fulfill, he really is trying to accomplish something specific with each project. And so that's why I want to see the movie again. I've seen it twice, but I've only seen it once in IMAX. And I think it's really important to see it at least twice in IMAX. Unfortunately, the damn IMAX is always sold out right now, so I haven't had a chance to see it again. Since he obviously doesn't have the Joker to deal with, he decides to go with a movie where Bruce Wayne has to uh, carry the film on an emotional level. And also, I was very happy with the fact that he picked a villain that was a physical challenge for Batman. Because in practically all the other movies, Batman just beats the crap out
2: Hmm. of him.
3: Uh, Whereas here, we finally see all his victories piling up to basically weaken him. You know, I mean, Bane even it's not a, it's not a line that Bane says that I've seen in, in the comics, but it basically sums up what Bane really did to Batman in the comics, which was when he said he catches his fist and he says, all your victories have defeated you. And I was like, ah, so that's mm-hmm. very, very well done.
2: Um, so John, uh, overall impressions on dark Knight rises,
1: you know, I, I mean, just first impressions. I, I really liked it. Um, Except I will say that I, uh, I was watching it in the, uh, when I was watching it. I had just gotten off a flight. I was basically traveling all day, and so I was really tired. So my filters were down a little bit. It's like usually I will not speak in a movie, you know, during a movie. But like <laughs> when, um, when at the end, Batman like has this atomic bomb that's sitting <laughs> in, in in a truck, and he has to get it like at least six miles away from Gotham, and he's like stopping for a kiss. Like, oh my god, would you hurry up? I actually said, like, would you, would you hurry up? I said that aloud in the movie theater and I said it a little bit too loud. Like, I, I didn't, th- I didn't think I was saying it that loud, but it was actually kind of loud.
2: The whole thing with the bomb at the end really, well, th- there was like a whole thing with time, like all the time in this movie seemed really weird to me. I mean, and the bomb thing in, per- was, was one, just one example of that, but I, I would have to watch it again, but it felt to me like there was like a minute left on the bomb and, mm-hmm it had been established that he had to get it, that it had a blast radius of six miles or something. So I was like, all mm-hmm. right, well, they're effed. <laughs> you know, is yeah, how it yeah, seemed to yeah. me. Just the idea that they could actually fly it six miles away in the amount of time they had seemed totally mm-hmm. wrong to me.
3: Did anyone do the math on that? Like, how fast would it have to go in the amount of time mm-hmm. and six miles? And
2: Like, well, no, but it, it just seems impossible. Even just, like, getting in and fastening your seatbelt, or I didn't even know, like, whatever, just seems like it would take more time than... Was left on the timer at that point, but but there was stuff like that throughout the movie. Like he gets his he's badly injured enough that his vertebrae is poking out of his back, Mm -hmm. and then heals well enough to be able Mm -hmm. to climb better than anyone ever has before. But it was just like and all the I mean it, it felt to me as if the story was just too big for this movie. I mean, it felt like they had like cut a lot of scenes really short because there was just so much stuff they had to stuff in this movie.
3: If you're gonna do Bane, you have to break Batman's back.
2: There. But the but the problem, Rob, though, is that Bane has to break Batman's back and take over Gotham. And then Batman has to come back and save the day. Mm-hmm. Which necessitates Bane taking over Gotham and that lasting a long enough period of time for Batman's back to heal. And it's right. just that's gonna be weird, I think, no matter how you
3: I agree. I mean you can't you certainly can't do it the way that Batman healed in the comics because I, I don't know if you know this, but he was he wasn't healed by natural means in mm-hmm. the comics. I mean, and that's what I was scared of because I was like, oh, no, you know, Bane is in here and clearly Bane's going to break his back. But, you know, in, in in the comics, you know, Batman is healed by uh, telekinetic uh, uh powers from a, a woman that he's in love with. You know, then he has uh, Lady Shiva, this assassin that he knows, uh, you know, is considered probably the deadliest assassin on the the planet. She retrains him and, you know, uh, and then he comes back to, you know, to reclaim Mm. reclaim his role as Batman. Uh, Clearly, you can't do that in cinema. I mean, not not the way Nolan has defined the Batman world where there is no paranormal thing. So he was going to have to go that way. Um, is I mean, uh, are you basically saying he made a, a fundamental mistake in having Bane as the villain in that sense? Um,
2: in I, I'm not even saying I I think you should have done it differently. I'm just mm-hmm. saying I mean, not every story can be worked out perfectly. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, every story is kind of like a puzzle, and sometimes not all the pieces fit together. And what can you do? Uh, I think sometimes that's... you just
1: take a hammer and you put the pieces together, <laughs> even though they don't fit.
2: <laughs> sometimes you just punch the pieces in the back with a <laughs> eastern mystic punch and <laughs> force them all to go. But no, I, yeah, I, I don't. I, I, I was I was pretty happy with the movie, but the time stuff I just feel like yeah, it just feels weird. I don't know.
1: No, no, I I, I agree with you, uh, especially with that that case you just mentioned uh, of. You know the time when Bruce Wayne is in prison. Yeah, like it, it all felt it, it, all felt weird to me, like that all of this was happening over such a like a long time span because it didn't feel like it was that long. Like it didn't feel like Bruce Wayne was there that long. It seemed like you know he got back and recovered from his injury very quickly, but uh, in in reality, in the movie, it's like it actually is over the span of several months. And so like I didn't feel like they did a good job of of uh, actually making that feel that long.
3: Yeah, that's a legit. Yeah, I hear you on that. I agree with that. I absolutely. Yeah.
1: With that. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the time span was six
3: months, which is exactly what the comic suits. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that said, I mean, there there is a lot of great stuff in the movie. Um, I really like the twist that Miranda Tate turns out to be raza Ghoul's Ghul's daughter. Uh, like, I didn't see that coming, and uh, I don't know if that's in the comics or not. But um, I mean, that was like that was very cool, and I and I love the idea that that the that the kid that we saw that climbed out of that dungeon was her, not Bane, because yeah. thought, like all along you think it was Bane as a kid. And I I just I really thought that was cool because like it really pulled the rug out um, in a good way. And it's legit. It's like legit. Like if you if you go back and watch it, I'm certain like it all makes sense because like it 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 made sense to me immediately immediately after seeing it. So does does. that was cool. So so Rob, like in the comics, like does Bane have that odd voice? He isn't he has a normal voice because he doesn't he does not have a contraption over his mouth, right? Yeah, that's okay. that was one of my other questions. Like, it looks like in the comic, like he just has some sort of. It's like it's basically like a Mex- like a Mexican wrestler mask. Um, yes. but Like, does, does he have the same sort of medical issues? Uh, Bane is a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Okay, and
3: that tubular system is uh, feeding the drug directly to his brain, and uh, he has like this contraption on his left forearm where, when he wants more venom. He'll just push a button and he'll and it'll feed directly into his brain and he becomes more powerful and stronger
1: and yeah. So what do you what do you guys think of Tom Hardy's performance? Like I thought I, I was really impressed. I mean like I really liked him in Inception and uh, and I didn't know much about him other than Inception, but like I like I mean he really committed to that role, man. I mean he put on like thirty pounds I saw um, and I mean he like I I wouldn't have guessed that he would be big enough to play Bane, but he looked pretty good in the movie. I thought.
2: Yeah, I thought he was really good. I mean, and I th- I thought the voice was really. Good eerie uh, mm-hmm. i it sort of it was very unsettling i mean i had a hard time still i guess they've made it easier to understand mm-hmm. i still had a hell of a time understanding what he was saying a lot of the time and just like the volume was kind of weird on it it seems like mm-hmm. but i i thought that the performance was was fantastic i i really uh i really liked the character
1: yeah, yeah well i mean a good thing they went back and redubbed the dialogue because uh i actually uh another video i saw online recently was uh somebody did a comparison of because uh i guess you know they they did they released like the first five minutes or 15 minutes of of the movie uh as a prologue in in front of some as a trailer in front of some movie and and so it was like the first you know the first bit of the dark knight rises uh with bane on that plane and everything um and uh and so like people were complaining because like you couldn't understand what he was saying um and and so and so there was some controversy saying like oh there was all these complaints, but then Nolan didn't do anything about it. But then so somebody went and they actually took the audio from the actual movie and they took the audio from that original screening and they compared it. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, they they improved it a lot. Like, I mean, I don't think I would have been able to understand anything Bane said if they hadn't changed it. I mean, and although like you, I uh, there were times where I didn't um, actually get catch what he said exactly. And I, I might have liked to actually have subtitles for Bane um, talking. But I mean, for the most part, I understood what he was saying.
3: You're, you're going to have to see the movie at least 10 times to capture every <laughs> single word.
1: Yeah.
2: But got that that first scene with the, the airplane hijacking, man, mm-hmm. that was a. Am- I would love to see that on IMAX. That must be amazing. It was amazing yeah. just on a... Dave, Dave, man, you got to. <laughs> and the
3: fight scenes uh, between Bane and Batman are in IMAX, and they're great.
2: Uh, what would you guys think of Catwoman?
1: Loved her. I really liked her as well. Uh, I mean, you know, I thought uh, I I was a little skeptical about um, Anne Hathaway uh, being cast, but I mean, I thought she did a good job.
3: I have always wanted Catwoman and Batman to be together ever since I read Hush. And um, the movie basically delivered as far as I'm concerned on on that. You know, everyone talks about how great Michelle Pfeiffer did with uh, Catwoman, but I, I, Prefer the Anna Hathaway version.
2: Yeah, no, that's I I think I kinda do too. I mean, I've always just the idea that you could hit your head and get licked by a lot of cats and develop super martial <laughs> arts skills has always been a bit of a plausibility issue for me. But actually this this movie, I kind of I kind of went back and forth watching it between that was awesome, and I'm having a really hard time suspending my disbelief right now.
3: <laughs> Got it.
2: Mm-hmm. And I don't remember it bothering me as much in the previous movies. Maybe if I went back and watched them, it would. But the fact that people can't figure out that Bruce Wayne is Batman in this movie hmm. just seems totally ludicrous uh, in some scenes, particularly yeah. people who are have been interacting with him as Bruce Wayne and as Batman in short succession, mm-hmm. uh, right. ca- like Catwoman and Christian right. Gordon and stuff. It's just like, how many suspects are there who could be Batman? Like, Mm -hmm. you're looking for a white male, 6'2", 200 pounds, whatever, (laughs) in in awesome shape. Who has access to amazing prototype Wayne Industries technology?
1: Uh, And, and, you know, I mean, and the the big thing is, is that, like, well, Bruce Wayne suddenly becomes a recluse and Batman disappears at the same time. So it's like, that's kind of a red flag.
2: I mean, one thing I want to talk about with this, with Dark Knight Rises, is, is the line from the trailer where Catwoman says... There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne, and you're going to see what happens when you've taken so much for yourselves and left so little for the rest of us. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of sort of 99% rhetoric in in Bane. And I was just wondering what what you guys think of that. I mean, it, it seems very plugged into the zeitgeist on one level, but then I was really confused about what Bane's actual politics... Are.
3: I don't. I don't think he has any politics. People use, you know, they, they'll they'll hijack any sort of rhetoric to help them achieve the means that they're trying to accomplish. And clearly, I mean, the way I saw it was the dude was just on a on a suicide mission to uh, execute uh, Raz al Ghul's uh, mission. To destroy Gotham.
2: Okay, but if they're just trying to destroy Gotham, like, right at the beginning of the movie, basically, they have a neutron bomb and a detonator. But they... That's not good Mm -hmm. enough, right? They want... I mean, what what, what was their actual plan? I mean, they they wanted... I mean, it seems like they wanted Gotham to kind of tear itself apart, kind of like the Joker did, and Batman to, like, get stabbed by Talia. At the moment, it would hurt him most or something. It just seems like... I'm not... I just can't get clear what exactly the plot was and Mm -hmm. why it was so important for it to unfold that way.
3: I just you know, got the sense that Bane didn't want to kill uh, Batman because uh, he didn't want to give Bruce Wayne anything that he wanted. I mean, it was pretty clear that Batman at that time really wanted to find somebody willing to kill him. He wasn't going to give Bruce Wayne anything that he wanted. So he was going to haul him up in a a pit-type prison uh, and torture him. You know, torture his soul, I think he said, or something like that. In order to really torture Batman, you have to torture the city.
2: Well, but I mean, what happens then is that Batman saves the city and kills them both. And it seems like the risk of that happening was fairly obvious given the plot that they had set in motion. So why was it so important to have this plot unfold the way it did, given the high risk that Batman would end up killing them both and saving the city? Mm -hmm. Because give, give, if, if it unfolded because that way. Batman
3: needed to save the day, Dave. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, so, so you're basically just saying it's a plot.
3: It's a plot problem. device.
2: Yeah, a plot device. Yeah.
3: yeah, it's a plot device. I mean, they're, they're suicidal maniacs, I mean, basically, when you think about it. You know, I mean, Bane isn't in the comics, but that's the way Bane is in the, in the, in the movie. But it's the way Bane so systematically goes about it. That seemed very much like Bane to me. And 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 in the and in the comics, Talia is actually a love interest. So that was quite a a thing to see Talia actually in the movie actually st- stab a uh, Batman because uh, in the comics she she would never have. Uh, I mean, compl- of course, it's a completely different storyline. So, but the um in the comics, Talia is way way too much in love with Batman to do something like. Talia, uh, her death scene, I thought was extremely weak. Very ineffective, and I didn't care.
1: And Bane, is he dead? I assumed he was killed, but I mean, I I think it was left, I think it was probably left deliberately ambiguous so that in case they do want to make another movie after this, that they'll leave it up to them to decide whether or not he died. But I got, I got the sense that
3: Catwoman certainly thought she
1: killed him. Yeah
3: what she said about
1: guns but you know. yeah i mean you know that that said uh, uh i would say that i was actually disappointed in in the deaths i mean whether or not being you count bane as a death i was disappointed in both him and talia's uh death i mean he's fighting batman and then in comes catwoman and saves the day with you know with a with a gun basically and it's like you know i get it i get what they were going for there but like i don't know like i wanted batman to Actually, you know, figure out some way to beat him, not just have 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 one of his friends come and save him, you know? Yeah, no, and for
3: it to end that way seemed very cheap. Mm-hmm. It just it just felt cheap. It was like, wow, you the guy the the guy's been the main villain for you know three quarters of the movie, if not more, and then suddenly he's just sort of dismissed, like in a fraction of a second, because now we need to move on with the story. You know, it's like, wow.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that. That was the the one thing I I found disappointing about Talia, the the Talia twist, is I really felt it made Bane, it minimized (laughs) Bane so much. It just deflated him so much at the end of the movie.
3: It it sort of actually made him a a sympathetic sort of character because he was her protector in the prison. And and how he paid for that with whatever they did to his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And in the comics, he's a very sympathetic character in a sense. Especially uh in terms of being born in a prison to serve his father's crime,
1: I will say you know one thing that the movie really succeeded in was making me want to go read more Batman, like you know in a way that the other movies didn't like you know while I, as much as I liked the other two movies, especially the Dark Knight, neither one of them really inspired me like, oh, I want to go find out what you know where this actually comes from, like you know where uh you know where 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 Nolan borrowed from and, and what what other like I want to read more about the Joker and I want to read more about these other characters. I I I didn't really feel inspired to do that, but then after this one, like I don't know, like so there's something about it that really made me want to go find out more about that. I I don't know if it's just that Bane seems, like there seems so, like so much potential for that character that I wanted to read more about them or whatever. But um, I, I really did want to go find out more more about the the actual you know comic book canon after watching this one.
2: Okay, so so Bane had no politics, right? Did this movie have any politics? I mean, you know, there's kind of all this stuff about CIA interrogations and 99% and stuff like that, but is it just sort of fodder for a th- action story, or is there That's... any message or anything in there? I
3: thought there was more of a message on the political level in The, in dar- in the Dark Knight than there was in this movie. Mm -hmm. even despite all the rhetoric despite all the speeches by bane and the rhetoric and and all that i thought i thought all the political stuff or people would interpret the political stuff in this movie in the dark knight rises i thought it was all hot air frankly for for a dramatic action piece
2: i I guess i I heard someone saying oh well this movie is like in favor of the one percent because like bruce wayne's this rich guy and he's great and then the 99% can just be whipped up into a mob with very little effort and stuff like that. But that's not I, I I really saw this stuff to the extent I I think it's mostly just fodder for an action story myself, but to <laughs> yeah. the extent that it's not, it just seemed to me to be saying that like 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 Catwoman says, when you leave people with too little, you're just laying the groundwork for psychopaths to come along and mm-hmm. cause society-wide devastation
1: right we haven't talked about um blake at all uh who you know sort of we're led to believe will become robin in some uh some way at the end of the movie like i thought he was great you know joseph gordon levins character jo- joseph gordon levitt's character I-, I i really liked him and and i mean um i'm actually kind of bummed out that somebody uh, mentioned robin like on twitter or something like uh, oh and no so, and, so, and so like i saw that and so like Shortly after meeting his character, I was like, oh, he's going to become Robin, you know. Um, oh, but I mean, I, I, but I wasn't sure how it was going to happen. And I certainly didn't expect it to happen the way it does. And I really liked the, uh, the, what what does happen in the movie. And, and you know, the, sort of we're left to believe that that he's not going to actually be Robin per se, but he's going to, you know, take up the mantle of Batman in, to some degree. And, and I mean, I mean, I'm really hoping that they do carry through with that instead of rebooting it or something. Because uh, I saw I saw like blogs talking about like how how they're going to reboot the franchise and like don't reboot it just continue it, pick it up where where Nolan left it and, and do something with that. I mean I
3: really liked what Nolan did with with the Robin introduction mm-hmm. in, in that in this movie, and uh, I didn't see it coming. I kept on te- asking myself why his name sounded so familiar, because you know his name is John Blake. Mm-hmm. and of the robins you know there was dick grayson the first robin there was jason todd the second robin and he was killed by the joker then the third robin is tim drake and it was like tim drake john blake duh you know? <laughs>
1: okay because i don't have a lot of familiarity with the comics like i wasn't sure if that character was like obviously robin or not and i mean like i knew i knew dick grayson was like the original robin and so uh like i knew that wasn't the name but one thing i thought was interesting is that you know the way they handle it and they instead of instead of having him like take on the mantle of robin or something it's like they just sort of throw that in there by having like somebody make a comment and have us reveal like oh his first name is actually robin and so that and then so that gives us the like oh okay because like you know what because like even even though like i'm not like a huge batman uh comic book fan even i knew that dick grayson was, was robin but but most people who go to see these movies probably don't know that. And so, like, if they had tried to make the big reveal be like, oh, his name's Dick Grayson, that's not going to resonate with anyone. But if you say, like, oh, his first name's actually Robin, like, they, they get it.
3: It was him. And it surprised a lot of people in that. Because obviously mm-hmm. I saw it on opening night. I had bought the tickets a good two months, you know, before mm-hmm. it to see it on IMAX. And uh, the audience knew. They knew the comics. OK. Mm-hmm. Because when. When Bane picks uh, Batman up and and breaks his back, people clapped. They were like, oh, I, you, know, he, you know, Nolan did it. And uh, they were just, they were like, oh, man, I should have seen that coming, you know, when uh, Robin was revealed.
2: I don't know if I actually cried at the ending, but if I didn't, I came pretty close. Right. And I think that's a real testament to the power of this movie, considering how many analytical problems I had with the ending. (laughs) But emotionally it was so effective. But I mean I had huge problems, as I said, with the bomb time Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. I had huge problems with the fact that Bruce would let Alfred believe he was dead for a really long time and then Mm -hmm. just kinda like let him find out. It's like, ah you got me, Mr. Wayne. I thought you were dead this whole
3: time. (laughs) As a comic fan, I really uh I, I needed to see that. I needed to see Bruce Wayne truly let go of being Batman and to see him as just being Bruce with Selena Kyle too, I mean, to boot. I mean, that was that was awesome.
1: I mean, like I had I had some analytical problems with it as well, and and like I also felt myself being very emotional at the end of the movie because yeah, I mean, e- even even with the problems with the ending specifically, it's like yeah. Uh, overall, it does really come up with this like you know this emotional uh, groundswell toward the end there that I mean. I mean, I'd be very surprised if, if most people didn't encounter that.
3: Well, I cried a little bit. I definitely cried a little bit.
2: Well, it was interesting. I've heard people younger than, like maybe ten years younger than than John and me, saying that this is like their trilogy. This is like their Star Wars was for us, or or whatever. Huh.
1: Although it's interesting that it did transcend that gen- that uh, that generation gap too, because even though it's, like, huge to them, it's, like, still amazing to us, right? Like, whereas, uh, like, apparently the Bar- the Burton movies, like, the- there was a bit of a generation gap there, where, like, it-, it was amazing to us when we saw it as kids, but, or, you know, sort of teenagers, and, and yet it wasn't, you know, it didn't affect Rob. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, I mean, not I mean, in a good way.
2: Well, <laughs> and, and and that this, this seems to have pleased all the comics. You know, Rob was saying as a comics fan that Tim Burton, Batman, really let him down, where it seems mm-hmm. everyone I've heard from who's a comics fan, is a big fan of these movies as well.
3: I think that Batman Begins really sort of gave us the Batman, or at least gave me the Batman that I was looking for, that I've always wanted to see on film. The Dark Knight gave me the Joker that I've always wanted to see on film. But it didn't change the mythology. It didn't change the Batman canon. The third movie changed things. Bruce Wayne, reasonably still in his prime, maybe obviously past it, still has a more of a life to live, lets go of the mantle and moves on. I'm not aware of anything in the canon that does that. I mean, that 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 movie actually changed things uh, in terms of me as a comic book reader for, for Batman. And also, like I said, with... Um, with Batman and, and Catwoman as well, so I feel like in 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 his attempt to close the story, he had uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman do things that you know really never done before, which is end it and I'm moving on with my life to be a, you know to be a reasonably happy person. I and I and I uh, I thought that was cool. I thought that he genuinely did something different with Batman with the third
2: movie okay cool so i guess just the last thing i want to talk about is that they showed a kind of teaser trailer for Zack snyder's superman movie before this before dark Knight rises and that movie produced by christopher nolan so i'm just kind of kind of wondering what do you guys think about that what is the future of chris nolan or the legacy of chris nolan as far as superhero movies go
1: uh yeah no i mean i'm 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 cautiously optimistic about this i mean largely because christopher nolan's uh involved uh i mean i have had mixed feelings about Snack, zack snyder although um although i did like watchman uh, i know not i know not everyone did and I, I did like the dawn of the dead remake he did but you know i mean i I'm, I'm i'm cautiously optimistic i mean we'll we'll see how it goes i mean like if the movie does well like i, I could see uh zack snyder potentially taking over where uh, chris nolan left off with the batman franchise like uh and I mean, and I'd love to see that um, him picking up right where he left off, meaning like Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character uh, sort of picking up the torch for Batman or whatever, um, whether it's as Batman or as one of or like Nightwing or something like that or or just as Robin or, or whoever.
3: Yeah, if it's if it's going to be good, this new Superman film is going to have to introduce a different mood to the storytelling of, of Superman. And I I. Um, I think that may be their intent. I mean, that trailer left me with the, with the impression that they're going for a more somber, uh, if, if not melancholy mood. So that, that sort of makes me think, well, is he going to be, is Superman going to be, you know, struggling despite his incredible powers? Is he going to be struggling with the limitation, the limitations of those powers? I mean, he can do a lot of things, but he can't do everything.
2: Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm looking forward to it as well. I I actually kind of like Superman Returns. I'm one of the only people, I think. But <laughs> I just kind of liked the take of Superman as a stalker deadbeat dad. I, I don't know. I thought that was kind of <laughs> interesting. Although, again, I didn't like the... I, I don't like the last act of essentially any superhero movie I can think of. So if they can make a superhero movie that the ending actually I find analytically satisfying... That'll be quite an accomplishment. And I like I like Zack Snyder. I liked Dawn of the Dead. I liked 300. I liked Watchmen again. I seem to be a bit in the minority of that. I didn't like Sucker Punch. I just thought it was really boring. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think he's a good director.
3: I'm just asking to see a villain other than Lex Luthor, please. It's <laughs> all I'm asking for. I'm sick and tired of Lex Luthor. It would be nice to see Batman. Oh, oh man, I would love to see <laughs> A Batman Superman movie, especially if it was done like Hush or in The Dark Knight Returns.
2: Maybe that's maybe that's what this movie will be. How how awesome would that be if that's why Christopher Nolan was involved because they're <laughs> going to bring Batman in at the end?
1: Oh, that would actually be awesome! Yeah, you that
2: heard would... it. Here, you heard it here first. Yes, yes,
3: yes. Exactly. <laughs> that would be awesome.
2: All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Rob, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you, guys. It was fun.
2: And thanks again to David Brin for being our guest today. If you enjoyed today's show, please head on over to the iTunes store and give us a review or rating there. We're now using PodTrack to track our downloads, so we know for a fact that thousands and thousands of people out there are using iTunes to download our show. So if you're one of those people and you're a regular listener, please take a minute to do that. It's really easy and it makes a big difference in terms of our placement in the iTunes store and hence our ability to reach new listeners. Seriously, I check iTunes for new reviews like every half hour throughout the day. So rest assured that your review or rating will be noted and greatly appreciated. All right, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of
0: Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or... DavidBarrCurrently.com Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate9 Entertainment If you enjoyed this program tell your friends If you didn't enjoy it
2: tell no
1: one Thank you for listening